Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. In today's show, we're interviewing Connor Boyack, speaker, author of over a dozen books, podcaster, president of two nonprofits, an activist who's spreading the principles of liberty, entrepreneurship, and free market economics. Now, here at The Money Advantage, we're a community of wealth creators who are entrepreneurially minded business owners in taking control of our lives and financial destiny. And one of the most pressing desires is not only to thrive personally, to provide that highest quality of life to our family and our loved ones, but also to leave this legacy of wisdom and pass down principles, wealth, success, and the character that makes it possible. Now, let's zoom out to the big picture for a minute. In the cash flow system, you first increase cash flow by keeping more of the money you make. Then you protect your money, and finally, you increase and make more. Now, this conversation will take us full circle and land in two places in that cash flow system. First, it's part of helping you create and solidify your own mindset, your philosophy and principles of wealth creation in that very first step of the first phase but it's also a part of creating that legacy and passing on wisdom that will help our kids to flourish as entrepreneurs and value creators in the very last step of the last phase. So who is Connor Boyack? Well, Connor Boyack is the president of Libertas Institute, a free market think tank in Utah. In that capacity, he has spearheaded a number of successful policy reforms in areas such as education reform, civil liberties, government transparency, business deregulation, personal freedom, and more. Connor is also president of the Association for Teaching Kids Economics, a nationally focused nonprofit training teachers on basic economic principles so that they are empowered and motivated to help their students learn more about the free market. As a public speaker and author of over a dozen books, Connor is best known for the Tuttle Twins books, a children's series that introduces young readers to economic, political, and civic principles. He also co-hosts a podcast along with Brian Hyde that discusses entrepreneurship, innovation, philosophy, current events, politics, and more. They feature interesting guests who have compelling messages worth learning about, helping expose the public to insights and efforts that deserve greater awareness and support. Connor lives near Salt Lake City, Utah, with his wife and two homeschooled children. Buckle your seatbelts for this fascinating conversation. Hi, and welcome back to the Money Advantage podcast. I'm Rachel Marshall, along with my co-host, Bruce Weiner. And today we have a special guest, Connor Boyack. Connor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, we're really excited to be able to have this conversation with you today and just really talk about some of the things that are important to you and us and our audience. So before you started really being a huge proponent and communicator about the principles of liberty. Tell us a little bit about your backstory. Who were you and how did you get into that? You know, I kind of stumbled into it. My background is in web development and online marketing. So I, you know, full-time job, I would just be building websites and doing marketing stuff for clients. But because of that, I was immersed in, you know, social networking and reading news and really learning a lot. And my own education actually began after college. I graduated in information technology, but I wasn't really exposed to any of these big ideas. Uh, 
I took an intro level economics course, which was, I felt awful because it was all macro and none of it was relevant to my life. They didn't explain it a good way. I actually got like a C or a D, you know, Uh I I struggled in English, which is funny. I mean, I've written 14 books now. And so, you know, I, I struggled in English in college and, and, Everything was so like arbitrary, right? You have to learn the past participle subjunctive. And I'm just like, no, no, you're not explaining it in any context that makes it come alive, you know? Whereas now, after college, I really, uh, through my profession and having all this time to interact with people and develop my critical thinking skills, be exposed to other ideas and so forth, um, I really kind of just delved into my own education in terms of, you know, American history and economics and all this kind of other stuff that are now my passion and my profession. And so about uh, seven or eight years ago, I, I quit. Uh, I started a new organization and I haven't looked back since. And, and now I've been really immersed in these ideas and, and these issues ever since. That's excellent. So what gave you the interest in American history and economics in the first place? So uh, this royal really uh, boiled down to following current events more closely and seeing patterns. Um, you know, those who read history a lot, you can kind of see that history repeats itself. We go through a very cyclical pattern. Uh, we, as a society, we've been through many of these issues before. And so I started to kind of recognize and hear from other people who, who knew those patterns and who understood. They're like, well, no, look, you know, the founding fathers said this, or this Roman, you know, uh, statesman said this. And I would start to see wisdom in the past and I kind of developed an, a, an appetite, a real interest in learning from the past. There's that quote of, you know, those who don't learn from the past are condemned to repeat the, uh, the future or something to that effect. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so I wanted to really learn from the past to kind of figure out, well, how can we avoid those same mistakes now? And, and that kind of trigger, that, that uh, insight was what prompted me to kind of go deep and start exploring a lot of these uh, time-tested principles and what are the big, you know, problems and, and issues in the past that we can try and learn from. Well, that's excellent. So how did you become introduced then to the principles of liberty? Like kind of what was your progression as you started looking into the principles? Who were you first exposed to maybe as authors or ideas? So uh, one of the bigger things that pulled me in was as in 2006, I believe, maybe 2005, there was a documentary called um, America, Freedom to Fascism. And it was by okay. the, the late Aaron Russo. He's since passed away, documentary filmmaker. And he was uh, interviewing all these people and kind of charting the progress of, look, America was once the, the uh, light on the hill and the you know, free market uh, glorious thing and freedom everywhere or you know, far more perhaps than today. And then, and then he kind of charted the decline. So anyways, he interviewed a lot of people in that. And there was this one guy that was just making a lot of sense. I had never heard of this gentleman before, this old guy. And uh, his name was Ron Paul. And, uh-huh. uh, I was going to say, is that where you're going? <laughs> yep. <laughs> I think and, I actually saw that same documentary that you're mentioning. Oh, interesting. Too. Yeah, no, that was kind of what, what really prompted me. So I went and I watched a bunch of his uh, videos, C-SPAN, you know, stuff, he had, speeches he had given. I uh, read uh, one of his books, which was actually a compilation of, of uh, speeches he had given. It's called uh, A Foreign Policy of Freedom. And, uh, and I really just became immersed. And then shortly thereafter is when he actually launched his 2008 presiden- presidential bid. And so that really was kind of my nexus into this world of, you know, freedom and free markets and uh, the fight for liberty and everything. And, and it, it, uh, I went down the rabbit hole pretty quickly. 
That's awesome. And I think I mentioned this to you right before the show, but Lucas, my husband and I also um, participated. We were on the Ron Paul campaign in that 2008 timeframe as well. So it's interesting. We probably didn't cross paths. We were in Virginia and I'm sure you were out in Utah, but um, that's just kind of an interesting backstory there. So how did you move from that and being passionate about it to this idea that we'll bridge into that you really want to communicate these principles to others and not just others, but specifically to kids? How did that come about for you? Well, so I first started with my think tank that I run in Utah now, the Libertas Institute. And um, that came from a desire of like, look, I got involved with Ron Paul. And then everyone said, you know, go into the Republican Party and become delegates and let's get more active. And so I was kind of getting my feet wet and getting more active. And I have a marketing background. So I think very strategically, I think kind of outside the box. And, and I didn't see a lot of that in these groups that I was working with, right? And so... I wanted to figure out how can we actually make an impact? Let's not just vote. Let's not just blog. Let's not just, you know, talk. Let's actually get stuff done. And, uh, and so I started a group here in Utah to do that. We've changed uh, dozens of huge substantive laws in Utah. Uh, Ron Paul, it's, I mean, it's a, the greatest honor now that my longtime hero is now one of our biggest champions. Uh, he speaks... Uh, mm. publicly and, and often about the great work we're doing and how, uh, you know, and, and I love how he talks about it. He's like, look, people on the campaign trail would often ask me, you know, how can I support freedom and how can I make a difference? And he would always respond to them, I don't know, <laughs> right? Because like everybody's different. Everybody has their own path. And when I interviewed him once on the podcast, on my our podcast, he was like, uh, look, I never would have thought if you had asked me, Connor, you know, what you should do, I never would have thought go start a think tank and change state laws. But now you've done it. It's, you know, been an amazing success. And so it's kind of fun to have that support. But as I was working on on this think tank, I have two young kids. And they would ask me like, well, what do you do all day, right? Or what, what did you do all day? Where were you? And I started to try and figure out, well, how do you actually talk about, you know, a free market economic issue? Like, okay, hey, we're, be- we're battling with Tesla, right? And in, uh, not with Tesla, but uh, actually battling against the, the traditional car companies who have these old protectionist laws that in Utah uh, were prohibiting Tesla from selling any cars in Utah at all. So here we're trying to oh, fix wow. this issue and, uh, and, and work on this to, you know, increase the free, protect the free market. How do you talk to a six-year-old about that? Right. Like, mm-hmm. how do you boil that down? So these questions kind of percolated in my mind. I actually went on Amazon trying to find books. You know, like when you get to talk to your kid about like, you know, the birds and the bees or whatever, a lot of times a book is a good crutch to kind of make it fun right. or make it simple. So what are the books out there? Couldn't find any. And, uh, and so after being bummed for a little while, I kind of realized, hey, this is actually an opportunity because perhaps there are other parents like me out there who would love a resource. And so we started the first book, great response. And we haven't looked back since. We're now at eight books in the series. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Let's dive into some of those stories. So uh, for any of our audience that might not be familiar, Connor, your main book series is called The Tuttle Twins. And so they are geared for kids. And I want to say, I think you say about between ages five and 10, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And I think what I love about the most is it boils down a lot of these economic and entrepreneurship and um, just liberty principles and mindset to a uh, a level that can be understood for everybody. I mean, yeah. I think it's even helpful for adults. And so there's quite the lineup. You have a lot really packed into those books. And so there's several and we'll have the the list and the links for them on the podcast show notes as well. But what is your favorite of the Tuttle Twins books? 
Oh, you know, I think one of my favorites is uh, the the food truck fiasco, the Tuttle Twins and the food truck fiasco. This was our fourth book. It's based on uh, the ideas from Economics in One Lesson, which is a book by Henry Hazlitt. And uh, what I like about this book is it's an important issue on its own. In this book, it talks a lot about protectionism, how a lot of times the incumbent players in the market or in an industry will work with their buddies in government to create laws that prevent their upstart competitors from being able to have a, a free and fair playing field. And of course, this then favors the incumbent who can continue to amass more market share and consolidate power and so forth. So it's an important issue on its own. We see it with you know Uber and Lyft. We see it with Airbnb. We see it with food trucks You know, battling against uh, restaurants and their buddies in city council. So it's a very relevant story on its own. What I like most about it is we published the book. This was a couple years ago now. And then literally like two months later, there was an issue with food trucks here in my state in Utah, where mm-hmm. almost to a T, the issue in this book starts playing out in real life. And these food trucks are getting shut down. And uh, you've got these mayors who favor protecting brick and mortar restaurant owners from this competition. And so here in Utah, we ended up uh, waging a campaign to change the laws, just like in my book, Ethan and Emily, the twins start a campaign to rally public support. They have a rally. They, they pressure city hall. Like we almost use it as an instruction model, this, this foreshadowing book that I had written. And we just did the same thing. We had a big rally. We had 2000 people show up, all sorts of news crews, uh, a dozen food trucks. So we did this big rally. Oh, then, we, wow. then we go and pressure the legislature to go and change law. And we actually got past the, the nation's first uh, food truck freedom law that knocks down all these protectionist regulations. So I kind of have a, wow. a soft spot in my heart for that book because of the way it kind of played out in the real world and shows that just like we kind of wrote this story about Ethan and Emily making a difference and, and getting these laws changed to protect the free market, we actually went and did that very thing. So it was kind of fun how it shook out like that. Hey, hey, Connor, how do you balance how do you balance the idea of of uh, free market being totally free with with few regulations and then actually, you know, supporting laws to support free market? Did I mm-hmm. did I ask that? OK, OK. Yeah, um, I think I understand what you mean. I mean, the question is, do we like can we actually if we have a truly free market in the sense of no laws or guidelines or whatever, you know, kind of how, how does that work? Is that even beneficial? I, I kind of look at it this way. Like, so I'm more libertarian, right? And a lot of people want to talk about these like edge random cases that we'll probably never get to the philosophical stuff, right? Should the government build the roads, right? Like these right, kind of right. big questions. And I say, you know, I want to start by getting the government to stop like hurting people in other countries or stop taking so much taxes. Like, let's focus on the big real stuff. If we ever get to the day when we have to address these like edge case philosophical issues, I'll probably not even care at that point because we'll have so much freedom that like I'll go and do other things. So I kind of respond to this question the same way that it's kind of a very philosophical question of Mm -hmm. what are appropriate regulations for the market, but we can clearly see all around us so much intervention. I mean, you talk about the bailouts, you talk about cash for clunkers, you talk about, you know, all right. of the, the Federal Reserve and the manipulation of the interest rate. The tariffs. In my mind, the tariffs. Then, uh, tariffs. Great and, example. And then, then it hurts the farmers. So we're going to pay the farmers because they got hurt. Right. There's so many big issues that we got to tackle. If we ever got to a day where we then need to say, okay, we've gotten rid of all of these obstacles. 
Now let's have our philosophical discussion about what's an appropriate amount of you know, regulations. That would be a great day to get to that point where that's actually the operative challenge that we're dealing with. Um, and so, I, I mean, I've got all sorts of answers on that. I, I right. think that uh, markets self-regulate far more than we give them credit. And uh, my, my presumption, my preference would be in favor of far less laws rather than out of a, you know, speculation of problems or fear that we over-regulate and try and uh, create laws for every little thing. So I definitely lean in that direction. I just think that I prefer we continue the overall trend in that direction. Uh, uh, but we're clearly not there. There's a lot of room for opportunity, I, I guess you can say. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious how, because that is a, like you said, it's a philosophical question that everybody that has a free market kind of idea has to, has to one time or another deal with. Totally. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, what are you pushing for? Are you pushing for no laws? Are you pushing for less laws? What's kind of your ultimate proposal? I, th I think that's a very fair question. Yeah, and I, and I tend to, I tend to uh, have libertarian views very much so too. And Penn Gillette, I don't know if you know who he is, the magician, uh -huh. yep. you know, he's, he's very outspoken with libertarian views. And I once heard him say the way he decides this is the first thing you should ask yourself is, can we do this without a law? Mm -hmm. And I think that's you know, a common sense, you know, approach to to it. It's not that you don't have to have laws at all, but can you do this without a law? That should be the first question you ask yourself. Well, and, and there's an economic principle here. Uh, Boss, Frederick Bastiat talked a lot about this. Others have as well. But the principle is that which is seen and that which is unseen. Right. So we can see, uh, you know, that, hey, if the government enacts a tariff that we're protecting like the, the specific people for whom it's you know, allegedly protecting. That's a very visible effect. And that's what Trump or others will go and tout. They'll, mm -hmm. they'll highlight everyone's attention on the things that we can see. To be a good economist, you have to focus also on the things that you can't see. You have to contemplate unintended effects or even perhaps intended effects, but that are invisible or that are harder to see. The economic uh, principle here also is concentrated benefits and dispersed costs, right? right? And so we can concentrate the benefits on the folks being protected by the tariff, but the costs are dispersed among society who are having, you know, uh, job loss and increased uh, uh, costs of goods and, you know, all these other costs that get baked into the program. But Trump and others aren't going to say, hey, look at all the negative impact that's going to be dispersed out there a little bit among a larger group of people. So that's the ultimate concern when we talk about these laws is we can highlight kind of the benefit or the impact. I think we need to, to, to do it well. We need to also contemplate, hey, if we pass this law to regulate this industry, what are some of those negative effects that maybe not won't be readily apparent at the outset, but that are no less you know, real and impactful for those who are subject to them? And this, and this here is, it brings up the problem, I think, that we're having in this country and across the world is in order to do that, the individual citizen has to think, <laughs> you know, they have to oh, yeah. they because as you said, the, you know, the political entity and we don't have, and whatever political entity it is, is actually only selling you the good parts. Well, mm -hmm. you, you then have to think and, and do some critical thinking about, well, what are the bad parts and how, how can this uh, hurt you? It's just like free market. I mean, there are parts of free market that can hurt individuals or small groups of people but you have to say to yourself what is the greater good of free market and does the, the part that hurts actually less than the parts that we, if we did have some regulations on the free market 
Sure. And those yeah. are the things that people are for the change that's positive overall. Exactly. You know, like the change might not necessarily be comfortable while it's happening, but at the same time, it might lead to more productivity and and a better product in the end. So I kind of hijacked that that uh, that thought, but I was really curious about how you thought about the balance between you know regulation and free market. Mm-hmm. I think it was interesting, Connor, even as I heard you talking about that, I heard um, some of the principles that you talked about in the road to serfdom um, kind of highlighted there just kind of some of the unintended consequences of government legislation. So I'll just put that little plug in for that book there. And then um, you really talked about the free market mostly with your book, The Miraculous Pencil. Can you talk a little bit about that and how um, just the the peaceful cooperation and collaboration of yeah. so many people is required to make something happen. Yeah, this is actually one of our more popular books. This one is based on an essay called I Pencil, uh, written by Leonard Reed, who started the Foundation for Economic Education, a fantastic organization. I get their emails. Yeah, oh, yeah they do a lot of great stuff. Fee.org, mm-hmm. F-E-E, uh, great, great resource for those interested in, in free markets. So uh, this essay is kind of the autobiography of the pencil. And he talks about how everyone thinks this is a simple little pencil. uh, But in reality, nobody knows how to make it. Uh, Because if you think about its component parts, the the wood, uh, right, the graphite, the metal, the rubber, uh, etc. All of these parts uh, would be extremely difficult for any one person to do on their own. So, you know, I do assemblies uh, based on our book, our children's version. I'll go into, you know, fourth and fifth grade and do assemblies at schools. And I ask kids, well, who here thinks they can make a pencil entirely on their own, right? And all these confident hands come up, you know, and, <laughs> and I say, well, okay, let's take just the wood. Like if you uh, had to get the wood, uh, how would you do that? Oh, well, you need a saw or you need an axe, right? And, okay, well, that's true. Uh, so then you cut down the tree, but how do you transport it to the mill or how do you cut it down to just the right length. How do you get sandpaper? Can you make sandpaper all on your own or are you just going to go buy it, right? And so you eventually start seeing that the people who make the roads, the farmers who grow the food that we eat for lunch to keep us going at work and, and making our pencil, there are literally hundreds of thousands of people in this ecosystem, this economic network that are all serving us throughout this chain of supply and service that help uh, a pencil come together at the end. And so this seemingly simple product is actually the collaborative effort of people across the world who speak different religions. Maybe their governments are hostile with one another. You know, Maybe they have totally different social preferences, et cetera. But through the economy, we come together and it produces social harmony in a win-win environment where we're paying one another, we're exchanging with one another, and it, it, to me, that's just a beautiful allegory for the way the world does work and should work. And, and so our version, the Tuttle Twins and the Miraculous Pencil, the kids go on a field trip and they learn how a pencil is made. They kind of step through the story the same way and really realize that, wow, all across the world, we're all working together uh, on a pencil, let alone more complex objects like a car or a computer. Uh, I think it's just a great story. And in and, and our family, for example, just like we do with the pencil and we say, who all was involved in all the different parts of the pencil. Now we'll sit down as a family and say, okay, mom just, you know, cooked dinner, but was it all mom? Who else helped? Oh yeah. The farmer. Oh, the grocery store guy. Oh, the truck driver, the folks who built the roads and so forth. And for me as a parent, I love it because it instills my children with a sense of awe and wonder at the world rather than a sense of entitlement of just a random meal showing up at dinner and Hey, give me my food. Um, and so I, I like it as a parent and I like it as a human. I think it's good for our society to be appreciative of 
of the reality of the world in which we live and recognize that by serving and helping one another, we all prosper. I love that. And I think that really fosters gratitude then as, and you mentioned the word appreciation just a second ago, because when we realize that it's not all just us, then there's just so much greater appreciation and respect and gratitude for everyone else in their contribution. Absolutely. Can you take that into um, the, the searching for Atlas book? I really love how you talked about work ethic and responsibility and kind of that balance between contribution and reward and what you're contributing. And I feel like that book is so valuable in this mindset of how do I produce value in the world? How do I really become economically independent? How do I become financially free and make a lot of money for myself? Well, it's by serving others. How can, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, this uh, book was, so the Tuttle Twins and the Search for Atlas, this was based on Atlas Shrugged. Each of our books is based on a, a classic text. And uh, obviously, for those who have read Atlas Shrugged, it's uh, got some very long diatribes in it. It's got a lot of, you know, sex and objectivism, and you can't exactly pack all that in for a seven-year-old. So uh, <laughs> we basically, uh, you know, distilled the core ideas of the book, like we do with the other books, to say, okay, well, at the end of the day, Ayn Rand was talking about the importance of personal responsibility, about keeping the fruit of your own labor, about not envying, um, about hard work, uh, the virtue of work, and so forth. Um, and so those are the ideas that we incorporated in our story to try and communicate those principles to children to say, look, there's a lot of envy in our world. There's a lot of uh, kind of more socialist entitlement, like, hey, give me what I do not deserve. Uh, I, I, mm-hmm. I feel that you should uh, give that to me. But at the end of the day, we're saying other people should work uh, on our behalf. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're not going to do the work for ourselves. That seems kind of a fundamental conflict, which obviously there's a separate conversation for like a social safety net and those who legitimately can't work and uh, are in need of charity. Ayn Rand, of course, would have something totally different to say about that than I would in terms of the importance of, of, of being charitable and supporting others who maybe can't. Point is that uh, by and large in our society, we're, it's comprised of people who actually can work and should work. And Uh, should enjoy uh, the fruit of their own labors and not try and take uh, that from somebody else. Um, And so that's kind of what the book revolves around. The story is kind of in a circus. And so you've got different actors and people in the circus who represent kind of the different attitudes and perspectives in terms of, you know, hard work and independence versus laziness and and, uh, envy and and, uh, and kind of the more socialist uh, entitlement mentality. And so just as Ayn Rand paints a a dystopian picture of a world in which those different attitudes are competing and lead to kind of the collapse of a society, and then the the hardworking, productive people flee to Galt's Galt's so they can have their own productive society. In our book, the the circus is kind of the microcosm for the society. So you see the same cause and effect of how these ideas play out. Um, and, uh, and what the logical extension of the different attitudes becomes. And so the child, the reader can follow along and kind of say, well, yeah, like how would a circus really work if all the clowns were lazy and didn't really help out and set up the tent and feed the animals and yeah, things wouldn't really work. It's important that everyone pitches in. It's important that, uh, hard work is rewarded and, and that those incentives are in place. And so the circus is kind of the, the little example, the microcosm so that the young reader can see how it would apply in like that small environment and then begin to think about how would it apply in the real world in, in a bigger environment. Oh, I love that. 
I love that. I feel like we could talk for a long time about all of your books as well, just because there's so much packed into them. And I love um, just even the synopsis that you'll have on the back of each one and kind of what main principles it covers. But then there's just so much built in educational, but really entertaining for somebody to read as well. Um, I do want to have you kind of wrap up in talking about the books. If you can talk a little bit about the show business book, and I think that was one of your newest ones. Mm-hmm. Um, on the principles of entrepreneurship. And the reason is that most of our audience is entrepreneurially minded. We're business owners, we're a community of people who are working to create our own way in life. We're we're not just depending on someone else. We're saying, how can we provide value? How can we solve problems? And how can we really be able to make the world a better place? So can you talk a little bit about that book on the show business? Yeah, this was our, as you say, our latest book. This was based on a book called Competition and Entrepreneurship uh, by Dr. Israel Kersner, a free market economist, uh, academic and author. And uh, the entire book, uh, it's, it's very academic, it's very scholarly, but it's very important to uh, establish, as he does, the prime role of the entrepreneur in the economy. Uh, and so often we, we you know, don't really understand the importance of the innovator in terms of job creation, uh, wealth production. And uh, we kind of take for granted, I think, in a lot of ways, these people who are assuming risk, uh, who are entering new markets, who are creating ripple effects in other markets. Uh, and it's these kind of change agents who... Uh, are really responsible in many ways for kind of the rising tide that lifts all boats. And so mm-hmm. we wanted to do a book that highlights the important role of the entrepreneur. And uh, in, in for youth, uh, entrepreneurship is a very hot topic right now, especially with shows like Shark Tank always doing so well. I'm a, oh, yeah. a, an addict of that show myself. And uh, uh, for example, here in Utah, we launched uh, last year. So this year was our second year doing the Children's Entrepreneur Market. And uh, each event is like a farmer's market, but run entirely by the kids. And we have hundreds of children participating in each one selling, you know, it's like a lemonade stand on steroids, really. It's people are selling, you know, games and crafts and clothes and books and food and really awesome stuff. And so we get like a thousand plus people coming out to these events to shop at these kid markets. So the kids get a great opportunity to practice entrepreneurship just on a Saturday, you know, prepare throughout the week. How do you market? How do you do price discovery? How do you handle competition when three stalls down, you know, they're selling fidget spinners just like you are, right? And so (laughs) that entrepreneurship is such a great way to introduce youth to free market ideas. And the the profit motive, of course, as we all know, is very strong. And when a kid has a legitimate opportunity to – grow a little business, earn a little money, that is such a great way to teach these ideas apart from books. I mean, the books are great. They're so important and they're very helpful for a lot of the parents who get them. But at the end of the day, you want to do something more and, and getting that tangible experience is so important. So we wanted to do a book on entrepreneurship. Uh, the book basically kind of walks a child through how would you actually set up a business? How do you, how do you think entrepreneurially? How do you problem solve? How do you find a way to serve other people and produce something that other people are going to want? And how do you get it to them? How do you market? And so we wanted to kind of have a young reader to be able to step through a book and say, hey, well, let's take that same process that the Tuttle Twins went through and let's actually do it in real life. You know, let's kind of, so we have activity workbooks where when the kids read the book, they can go do the activity workbook and they can create kind of a sample business plan and they can start to do some of these activities to 
not only think about and learn about entrepreneurship, but actually go practice it. And so um, it, that was actually a really fun book to do uh, for our children's markets. All the kids get one of those books now to kind of help them in their intellectual educational process to kind of learn more about the nuts and bolts of entrepreneurship. Uh, and, and I think, you know, over the long term, that's going to be one of the more important books we do because it's very actionable. It's not just learning mm-hmm. about the Federal Reserve and inflation where you walk away and say, okay, well, what can, you know, an eight-year-old do about it? But you read a book about entrepreneurship and you get a little handholding of, yeah, here's how you can actually do your own little, you know, lemonade stand or whatever. You can actually take action and start growing and learning about it. So I think it's going to be one of the more important books we've done. The thing is just fascinating as you're talking so much about the just helping kids because, I mean, we're raising a generation that we have no idea what the future is going to look like. I mean, change is happening so fast. Innovation is happening so fast. And they need to be able to respond to that. And I think entrepreneurship is a huge part of that in terms of figuring out how to solve problems that you and I can't even think of right mm-hmm. now because of the change of technology and just the, the fast pace. And so I want to use that to lead into, we have in our tribe, we knew a few people who were fans of your work. And so I asked for a couple of questions that we could bring onto the show today. And so one question is that we know that you also wrote a book called Passion Driven Education. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to know what are your thoughts on democratic schools and what do you feel a successful democratic school would offer to their students? Yeah, so the whole idea behind passion driven education is rather than speaking to children in a foreign language, like, hey, we're going to teach you algebra. Hey, we're going to teach you, uh, you know, English and learning these like specific names and terminology and everything. It's all these foreign languages that a kid does not intuitively understand. Instead, let's, let's use language that the child does understand. So if the kid's passion uh, is Star Wars, you know, let's introduce uh, some ideas of, of science based in the Star Wars ecosystem and using like, well, yeah, how, how does the Death Star just float there, right? And how do you... And so you can start to understand a lot of these uh, concepts, whether math or, or science or English or whatever, you can do it based around the interests of the child because they're intuitively interested in, in whatever that passion is. And so then as you help them make more sense of that world, uh, if you can explain, like my kid, when I wrote the book, uh, one, uh, my son, one of his interests was Angry Birds. And so we would talk about the, the physics of Angry Birds and explaining a I lot of scientific it. principles. And he loved it because he was learning more about Angry Birds. He, it was making more <laughs> sense why the birds fall and why in Angry Birds space, they actually kind of hover and and go around an asteroid over and over and over again. And so when I was explaining these concepts, it, it, was, it wasn't drudgery. It wasn't homework. It wasn't, uh, I have to learn about this. Okay, whatever. It was, wow, interesting, right? And so that's the whole concept behind my book, Passion Driven Education. In that book, we review a bunch of other educational models and how they kind of interface with this concept. And one of them is, you know, like the Sudbury schools, the democratic schools where kids are in charge. I love this concept because one of the biggest problems I have with modern schooling is its authoritarian nature. Um, And I believe that kind of inculcates in children a very submissive mentality where you're basically, for lack of a better word, indoctrinating into children uh, submissiveness and uh, being deferential to authority. I think we need more independent thinkers, more free minds, more people who kind of take matters into their own hands. And so when you have uh, in the formative years of a child's life, immersing them in a system of authoritarianism, I think that produces a, 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 a citizenry that is very, um, 
you know, encultured with or, or familiar with authoritarianism. I think that bleeds out into our political structures, our society. So I love the democratic school idea because from a young age, you're empowering children to engage. You're empowering them to not simply do what they're told, but to have a say in the matter and be able to think critically about, well, is this right? Or should we change it? Or what do I feel about this? You're, you're giving them a, a, a seat at the wheel of their own you know, life to be able to kind of drive things in a direction they feel appropriate with guidance, with control, with oversight and so forth. This isn't Lord of the Flies and, you know, <laughs> children are out on their own. So I, I like it from a much higher level. I, there's a lot of uh, more like smaller or localized benefits. But I think when I look at it on an aggregate scale, what type of society would these scales uh, produce? Um, I, I like that future, that uh, model far better than the, the public schooling that we have right now. That's excellent. And I think there's just a lot packed into that as well. I am going to throw out one other question and you can just um, feel free to answer only a portion of it. I know we brought this up at the beginning, but um, would you consider a chapter or two or a book telling kids on the, talking to them about the importance of investing in themselves financially? And the question also built in using mutual whole life insurance. And you don't necessarily need to speak to the second portion of that. That's something we're passionate about as well as most of our audience. But um, just the importance of investing in themselves financially and setting themselves up well. Yeah, this gets to uh, an underlying question, which is how many books are we actually going to do? And, <laughs> and <laughs> when we started the series, you know, things started moving along, second book, third book. I had the thought, okay, we'll do like eight to 10 and then we'll stop there. And uh, we've already now done our eighth. We're a few weeks away from publishing our ninth and we already have our 10th plan. And now, so we sent a survey out to our, we have about 40,000 plus uh, families reading the books on our list. And so we mm -hmm. sent a survey out a few months ago. And uh, one of the questions was, hey, you know, we've always thought about doing eight to 10 books. Should we, you know, drop it there and move on to other projects? Or do you think we should keep this going? Overwhelmingly, right? It was like 80% or something like that. People said, no, keep going, right? Of course, and, right? And so I'm like, <laughs> I've, I've kind of resigned myself to the, you know, the, the, this new uh, business model or new decision that we're just going to keep on going. So we've got a list that we've compiled of all sorts of other topics that we can do. And, you know, this kind of infinite banking, personal investment, this kind of concept is definitely on the list, like Nelson Nash's books. And uh, we have a lot of, of our supporters who are big champions of that model. Admittedly, I'm not super familiar with it yet. It's on my to read uh, pile, literally next to me on my desk right here to, to dig in and learn more. But so, awesome. so many people I respect, like Bob Murphy and others are big champions of, of this type of system. I want to learn more about it. And now where we have kind of this open-ended limit on books that we plan to do, uh, an, an issue like that, I'm not going to foreclose the, the opportunity to explore that in a future book. I love it. So if you want to give a foreshadowing of book number nine that's coming out, that'd be awesome. And if you can lead into how people can reach out to you, get connected with you, follow you on social media, or wherever you most hang out online. Um, you can kind of wrap that all into one if you'd like. Great. Yeah. So book nine comes out in just a few weeks. This is based on a book by Murray Rothbard called Anatomy of the State. Uh, and it basically boils down the ideas of persuasion uh, versus coercion. Is, a, is it better to build a society and an economy on coercion where we have central planning and control and you must do this and that? You look at Venezuela and elsewhere and you know, do we want a, a system like that or do we want one uh, where per, uh, persuasion is how we interact with one another and we're trying to use the market 
to encourage people to do things or to acquire things and so forth. And so the book really just kind of explores uh, very deeply. Uh, it's called The Tuttle Twins and the Fate of the Future. So it's actually encouraging the twins in the book and then the readers of the book to imagine a future. Let's use our creative uh, creativity and think about what should the future look like? Is a future uh, of the status quo really the best we can do? Or we, can we try and uh, now understanding a lot of these principles we've learned about in the books, try and imagine, well, what should society look like in the future? And, and the whole idea here, like with the entrepreneurship book, is to get children to be more kind of actively engaged and think about like, okay, do I just become a cog in the wheel of whatever this system is for my whole life? Or do I want to have a say in the matter? Do I think things can and should be better in the future? And if so, we got to start having those conversations and thinking about what the future should look like if it should be different than, than what we have now. So that's kind of the nuts and bolts of the book. Um, and, uh, and, and so TuttleTwins.com is where uh, you can find the books. Uh, we sell them all there. We provide the activity workbooks for free when you buy the books. That's just kind of the easiest way to find them. Uh, you can also reach out to me through TuttleTwins.com. Personally, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. I'm, I'm kind of everywhere. So if you just search Connor Boyack, you'll find me. And I uh, would love to engage with, with your listeners. And if anyone has ideas, we often hear from readers and, and others who say like, hey, what about a book on this? Or could you weave this concept into one of your books? And so a lot of our material has come from input from people saying, well, hey, what about a twist on this or an idea here? And so very much encourage people with ideas or comments to reach out. We'd love to, to engage with you. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that has just been a fascinating conversation today. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. And is there anything, Connor or Bruce, that you would like to share in closing um, before we wrap up? Well, the one thing that I'd like uh, to ask Connor is this, this is probably the fastest uh, podcast time that we've had uh, over a year of doing this. And I'd really like to get you back on and so we can really delve into more of the free market and how businesses are uh, affected by either uh, the positive parts of it or the negative parts of regulation. So uh, we're looking forward to maybe having you back on in the future. That sounds great. I'd love to do it. Excellent. That's fascinating. And we look forward to that very much. Thanks for bringing that up, Bruce. So again, um, thank you so much, Connor, for being on the show with us today. We really appreciate your time, your wisdom, and just sharing your passion with us. That's just fascinating. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you. Now, if you would like to create a comprehensive strategy to most effectively store your capital where you have safety, liquidity, and growth, and be able to invest in cash-flowing assets to build time and money freedom, email hello at themoneyadvantage.com to request your financial picture conversation. Today's show notes and resources are available for you at themoneyadvantage.com. Special thanks to our guest, Connor Boyack, and thank you to you, our listeners, for being with us on this show today. Remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. To learn how high-performing entrepreneurs 10x or more returns on liquid capital without giving up quick access to cash, go to themoneyadvantage.com forward slash liquid dash capital to get The Unfair Advantage, your 20-minute easy-to-read guide on maximizing your savings. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. 
Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and Investment Advisory Services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and Registered Investment Advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.